0: Chapter Five of Northwest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Northwest by Harold Bindloss. Chapter Five. Jimmy holds fast. The sun had sunk behind the range, and the sky was green. In places, the high white peaks were touched by fading pink the snow that rolled down to the timberline was blue. Mist floated about the pines by the river, but did not reach the hotel terrace, and the evening was warm. Looking down at the dark valley, one got a sense of space and height. At the end of the terrace, a small table carried a coffee service, and Laura occupied a basket chair, she smoked a cigarette and her look was thoughtful. Jimmy, sitting opposite, liked her fashionable dinner dress. He had met Laura in Switzerland, but he felt as if he had not known her until she went with Stannard to the Canadian hotel. In fact, he imagined she had very recently begun to allow him to know her. Stannard had gone off a few minutes since, and Deering was playing pool with a young American. "'Since you came back from the ranch, I've thought you preoccupied,' Laura remarked. "'I expect you thought me dull,' said Jimmy, with an apologetic smile. "'Well, for some days I've been pondering things, and I'm not much used to the exercise. In a way, you're accountable. You inquired not long since if I knew where I went.' then you got some illumination at the ranch you're keen i got disturbed does to stop at a ranch disturb one laura asked in a careless voice i expect it depends on your temperament jimmy replied and knitted his brows kellshope is a model ranch you feel all goes as it ought to when you leave things alone, they don't go like that. At Jardine's, you get a sense of plan and effort. The old fellow and his daughter are keenly occupied, and their occupation, so to speak, is fruitful. The trouble is mine is not. Laura saw that when he, some time since, apologized for his loafing, her remarks had carried weight. Jimmy had begun to ponder where he went, and she wondered whether he would see he ought to return to the cotton mill. Still, she did not mean to talk about this. "'You stopped Miss Jardine's horse?' she said. "'I did not stop the horse. I tried, but that's another thing. If I had not meddled, I expect Miss Jardine would have conquered the nervous brute, and I would not have got a nasty kick oh well said laura sometimes to meddle is rash but your object was good then stannard came to the veranda steps and looked about the terrace hello jimmy deering has beaten frank and we must arrange about our excursion to-morrow jimmy frowned and hesitated when he had talked to laura before stannard had called him away BUT HE THOUGHT SHE DID NOT MEAN HIM TO STAY, AND HE WENT OFF. WHEN HE HAD GONE, LAURA MUSED. SHE KNEW STANNARD WAS JEALOUS FOR HER. HE DID NOT ALLOW HER TO JOIN HIM WHEN HIS YOUNG FRIENDS WERE ABOUT, AND SHE DID NOT WANT TO DO SO. FOR THE MOST PART, SHE LIVED WITH HER MOTHER'S RELATIONS, WHO DID NOT APPROVE OF STANNARD AND WERE NOT SATISFIED ABOUT HER GOING TO CANADA. To some extent, Laura imagined their doubts were justified. She knew Stannard had squandered much of her mother's fortune, and now that her trustees guarded the small sum she had inherited, he was poor. Yet he belonged to good clubs and went to race meeting and shooting parties. It looked as if sport and gambling paid, and Laura saw what this implied. Yet her father was kind, and when she was with him, he indulged her. She had remarked his calling Jimmy away. As a rule, his touch was very light, and she wondered whether he had meant to incite the young fellow by a hint of disapproval. But perhaps it was not his object, and she speculated about Jimmy. He was now not the raw lad she had known in Switzerland, although he was losing something that at the beginning had attracted her. She thought he ought not to stay with Stannard, and particularly with Deering, and she had tried to indicate the proper line for him to take. Well, suppose he resolved to go back to Lancashire. Laura knew her charm and imagined, if she were willing, she might go with Jimmy. Although he could not yet use his fortune, he was rich and after a time would control the famous manufacturing house. Besides, he was marked by some qualities she liked. Laura got up with an impatient shrug and blushed. She would not think about it yet. She was poor, but she was not an adventuress. In the morning, Stannard, Deering, and Jimmy started for the Rocks their object was to follow the range and look for a line at the top of a peak they meant to climb another day they lunched on the mountain and in the afternoon stopped at the side of a gully that ran down to the glacier the back of the gully was smooth and the pitch was steep but hardly steep enough to bother an athletic man in places banks of small gravel rested although it looked as if a disturbing foot would send down the stones. Some distance above the spot, the top of another pitch cut a background of broken rocks, streaked by veins of snow. The sun was on the rocks and shone like polished steel, but the gully was in shadow, and Jimmy had felt the gloom daunting. Deering pulled out his cigar case— His face was red, his shirt was open, and his sunburned neck was like a bull's. "'My load's two hundred pounds, and we have shoved along pretty fast since lunch,' he said. "'Anyhow, I'm going to stop and take a smoke.' "'To lean against a slippery rock won't rest you much,' Stannard remarked. "'We'll get onto the shelf at the top of the slab.' "'Then somebody's got to boost me up.' Deering declared, and when Stannard went to help, put his boot on the other's head and crushed his soft hat down to his ears. Next moment he was on the shelf and shouted with laughter. Sometimes Deering's humor was boyishly rude, but his friends were not cheated, and Jimmy thought the big man keen and resolute. Stannard went up lightly, as if it did not bother him. He was cool and, by contrast with Deering, looked fastidiously refined. Jimmy imagined he had an object for leaving the gully. Stannard knew the mountains. In fact, he knew all a sporting gentleman ought to know, and Jimmy was satisfied with his guide. "'Since you reckon we ought to get from under, why'd you fix on this line down?' Deering inquired the line's good but we were longer than i thought and the sun has been for some time on the snow sure said deering the blame trough looks like a rubbish chute jimmy had trusted stannard's judgment but now he saw a light for one thing the back of the gully was smooth the mountain fronted rather north of west and so long as the frost at the summit held the party did not run much risk, but when the thaw began snow and broken rocks might roll down. When Deering had nearly smoked his cigar he looked up. "'Something's coming!' Jimmy heard a rumble and a crash. A big stone leaped down the gully, struck a rock, and vanished. A bank of gravel began to slip away and then a gray and white mass swept across the top of the pitch. Snow and stones poured down tumultuously, and when the avalanche was gone, confused echoes rolled about the rocks. "'That fixes it,' said Deering. "'I'm going the other way. Had we shoved along a little faster, we might have made it, but I was soft and couldn't hit up the pace.' HE LAUGHED HIS BOISTEROUS LAUGH AND RESUMED. THE TROUBLE IS, I PLAYED CARDS WITH JIMMY WHEN I OUGHT TO HAVE GONE TO BED. WELL, SINCE WE DIDN'T BRING A ROPE, WHAT ARE YOU GOING TO DO ABOUT IT? IF WE CAN REACH THE TOP, I THINK WE CAN GET DOWN ALONG THE EDGE, STANNARD REPLIED. AFTER SOMETHING OF A STRUGGLE, THEY GOT UP, AND FOR A TIME, TO FOLLOW THE TOP OF THE GULLY WAS NOT HARD. Then they stopped on an awkward pitch where a big bulging stone, jammed in a crack, cut their view. I'll try the stone, but perhaps you had better traverse out across the face and look for another line, Deering said to Standard. Jimmy went with Deering, and when they reached the stone, saw a broken shelf three or four yards below. On one side, the rocks dropped straight to the gully. In front, the slope beyond the shelf was steep. For a few moments Deering studied the ground. "'A rope would be useful, but if we can reach the shelf, we ought to get down,' he said. "'I'll try to make it. Lie across the stone and give me your hands.' Jimmy nodded. At an awkward spot the second man helps the leader, who afterwards steadies him. The rock was rough, and a small knob and a deep crack promised some support. Still, caution was indicated, because the shelf, on which one must drop, was inclined and narrow. Jimmy lay across the stone, and Deering, slipping over the edge, seized his hands. He was a big fellow, and Jimmy thought the stone moved but he heard Deering's boots scrape the rock, and the strain in his arms was less. Then he heard another noise, and snow and rocks and a broken pine rolled down the gully. The avalanche vanished, the uproar sank, and Deering gasped, Hold fast! The load on Jimmy's arms got insupportable. He imagined the noise had startled Deering, and his foot had slipped from the knob it looked as if he must hold the fellow until he found the crack jimmy meant to try although the stone rocked and he knew he could not long bear the horrible strain if deering fell he would not stop at the shelf he might not stop for three or four hundred feet jimmy set his mouth and tried to brace his knees against the rock the stone was moving and if it moved much deering would pull him over yet in a moment or two deering might get his boot in the crack and to let him fall was unthinkable jimmy held on until deering shouted and let go he had obviously found some support and jimmy tried to get back but could not his chest was across the edge and the stone rocked he was slipping off and saw half-consciously that since he must fall, he must not fall down the rock front. Pushing himself from the edge, he plunged into the gully, struck the rock some way down, and knew no more. Deering on the shelf saw him reach the bottom, roll for a distance, and stop. He lay face downwards with his arms spread out. A few moments afterwards Stannard reached the spot and looked down. Deering's big chest heaved, his mouth was slack and his face was white. When he indicated Jimmy his hand shook. "'I pulled him over,' he said in a hoarse voice. Stannard gave him a keen, rather scornful glance. TRAVERSE ACROSS THE FRONT FOR ABOUT TWENTY YARDS AND YOU'LL SEE A GOOD LINE DOWN. WHEN YOU GET DOWN, START FOR THE HOTEL AND BRING THE TWO GUIDES, OUR ROPE, A BLANKET, AND TWO POLES. SEND SOMEBODY TO TELEGRAPH FOR A DOCTOR. NOT AT ALL. I'M GOING TO JIMMY. I PULLED THE KID OVER. STANNARD FROWNED. YOU ARE GOING TO THE HOTEL. For one thing, I doubt if you could reach, Jimmy. You're badly jarred, and your nerves gone. Then, unless you get help, we can't carry Jimmy out. You mustn't leave him in the gully, Deering rejoined. Suppose a fresh lot of stones comes along. Go for help, said Stannard, pulling out his watch. Come back up the gully. If you have a flask, give it to me. I'm going down. But if there's another snow slide, you and Jimmy will get smashed. Besides, the job is mine. The snow and stones come down the middle and they'll stop by and by. Don't talk. Start!" Deering hesitated. He was big and muscular, but he admitted that on the rocks, Stannard was the better man moreover to know he was accountable for jimmy's plunge had shaken him and he saw stannard was very cool take the flask he said and went off at a reckless speed end of chapter five recording by roger mleen